This is Berkeley Voices. I'm Ann Bryce. Today, we're sharing an interview with Linda Kinstler. She's a sixth-year PhD candidate in the Department of Rhetoric at UC Berkeley and author of the 2022 book, Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends. She's a contributing writer to Jewish Currents and The Economist's 1843 magazine. She's also the deputy editor of The Dial, a new online magazine of culture, politics, and ideas with a focus on locally sourced writing from around the world. In March 2023, she was named one of 10 winners of the Whiting Award, which recognizes excellence and promise in a spectrum of emerging writers. In this interview, Kinsler talks about how a shocking discovery about her Latvian grandfather, who disappeared after World War II, led her to write a book about what justice looks like, how history can be distorted over time, and why we need to think more seriously about what we do with the memory of the Holocaust. I always like to start at the beginning and learn a little bit about you. Can can you tell me um, a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up and what you were like as a child? <laughs> Um, I don't know if I'm going to be a reliable narrator. Certainly not. Um, I guess the important thing to note is that, you know, my family immigrated to the United States from what was then, you know, Soviet Latvia from the USSR in 1988. And so uh, it was my mom and my dad and my older sister. And they, you know, moved when many Soviet Jews were allowed to leave the Soviet Union on the grounds of religious persecution. Um, And so we had a few distant family members in the United States, so they came here. Um, And I was born, I was the first person in my family to be born in the United States. Um, And I grew up, you know, speaking Russian and Latvian uh, and English and kind of having this melange of languages uh, all around. And, you know, moved a lot in the United States and then ultimately grew up uh, outside of Boston. Can you talk a little bit more about where your father's side of the family is from and where your mother's side of the family is from and their different backgrounds? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, My mother's family comes from Ukraine. Her mother, my maternal grandmother, was from Kharkiv, uh, which is now you know, continuously under attack by Russian forces. And my grandfather's family was from just outside of Kiev in this little um, town called Bilitserkva. During World War II, my grandmother was evacuated to Kazakhstan, as were um, kind of many civilians from the Soviet Union, mostly women and children. Um, And the men were sent to fight with the Soviet army. They were a Jewish family, both of my grandparents, and so she, both of them had relatives who were killed uh, when the Nazis occupied Ukraine. And after the war, you know, they both survived. My grandfather had gone to the front, um, and he had a job laying cables between the command centers in Moscow and the actual front lines for the Soviet army. Um, And after the war, he was relocated to Riga because the Soviets had taken over that of the Baltic states and were looking to populate them with Russian speakers. Um, And so that's why they ended up in Riga, despite, you know, having both grown up in Ukraine for their whole lives. Um, And my mother was born there uh, into this kind of 
Russian speaking Jewish world of emigres in Latvia. Um, and then she met my father who was, uh, you know, kind of from this very old Latvian family um, and whose father, my paternal grandfather had disappeared right after World War II under very mysterious circumstances. He never even met my father. My grandmother was pregnant at the time. And, you know, I grew up knowing very, very little about this figure. Um, I knew only that he disappeared. And, you know, when you, that's a very common fate from this part of the world. It didn't strike me as totally unusual, but it was only later when I began looking into it more and I realized that there was probably more to the story. And in fact, we discovered that not only had my grandfather been a member of one of the worst killing units that was operating under German command in the Baltic States, it was called the RS Commando. He was certainly a member of that group, but he also, after the war, registered as a, some kind of informant or agent for the KGB, and then he disappeared. So he kind of left this big question mark. In 2014, Kinsler was starting out her career as a journalist and was idly looking around for stories. And she began to read more about the killing unit that her grandfather, Boris, was a part of. And I discovered that one of the men who had also been in that group, his name was Herbert Zuckers. He was a very famous aviator in uh, interwar Latvia. He was called the Latvian Lindbergh, and he was very well-known for making these like daring cross-continental flights and he built his own planes. And so he very much had this kind of cult of personality around him. And so when World War II came, he too joined this unit and survived the war, fled to South America as many Nazis did. But unlike many of them, he didn't conceal his identity uh, because he didn't believe he had anything to hide. He was, you know, kind of very flamboyant about his location and claimed to be this great war hero and, you know, claimed never to have had anything to do in the killings of Jews, despite many, many eyewitness testimonies suggesting quite the opposite, that not only had he been present, but he had also contributed to them. And so what happened was in 1965, Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service, sent a team of agents to find him in Brazil. And then they lured him to Montevideo, Uruguay, and they killed him and they left his body in a trunk. And a couple of days later, they mailed a verdict announcing the death to news bureaus in Germany on his body. You know, the, the lead assassin, I should say, the lead assassin who led the mission, he wrote a memoir about how he did this, which is a kind of hilarious and fascinating document. Because of course, it's not every day that an assassin writes a memoir that is sanctioned by his bosses at the intelligence service about why he did this and why he did it the way he did. Anyway, oh my gosh. Yeah, he says that on the body, he left a verdict um, saying, you know, we tried to court martial him, but he reached for his gun. So we didn't have the chance. 
Um, so we killed him because he, for the murders of 30,000 Jews in the Rumbula forest in 1941, which he was indeed present for. Um, but in fact, what was left on the body was a folder containing the concluding speech of Sir Hartley Shawcross, who was the chief British prosecutor in Nuremberg. In 1945, the trial of 22 major Nazi criminals was held before an international military tribunal in Nuremberg, Germany. Judges from the Allied powers in World War II, Great Britain, France, the Soviet Union, and the United States, presided over the hearing. In the speech, Kinsler says, Shawcross speaks movingly of not only what happened, but also what the judges owe to the public, who were following the Nuremberg Tribunals. Here is part of his closing statement. After this ordeal to which mankind has been submitted, mankind itself, struggling now to re-establish in all the countries of the world the common, simple things, liberty, love, understanding, comes to this court and cries, these are our laws, let them Prevail. And so that is, of course, where the title Come to This Court and Cry comes from. Um, and I just found that discrepancy, even in the story we tell about the assassination, to be this kind of opening to think about actually what does that mean and what actually happened here and why is this still something that has been revisited endlessly? All of a sudden, I was caught up in the story and I couldn't kind of put it down. And I needed to understand how, in fact, could a man who had been dead since 1965 be the subject of an active criminal investigation? Come to this court and cry begins by looking at the interwar period in Eastern Europe between roughly 1921 and 1939, when a number of countries, including Latvia, a tiny country in the Baltic Sea, experienced their first bouts of independence. Prior to the 20th century, Latvia was part of the Russian Empire. But after the Bolshevik Revolution and the Latvian War of Independence, which culminated in 1921, the Latvian state emerged for the first time. Before that, it had always been a kind of colony of the Russian Empire. And so you have this very brief but really active period in which um, it kind of flourishes as an independent nation and gets to create its own laws and, you know, institute Latvian as the national language for the first time. The term nationalism I discovered in my research actually originated in Latvia um, when Johann Herder, who is a German philosopher, philologist, student of Kant, who had a residency at the Riga Cathedral School, and there's still a little bust of him out there. He was riding around the Latvian countryside collecting folk tales and poems, and that's when he realized that, you know, a nation is something that has a distinct collection of literature and language. Um, and he says, you know, perhaps... This is what makes a nation. This is his concept of romantic nationalism. 
It was during this interwar period, when Latvia had its independence, that her grandfather Boris was in his formative years. He joined a fraternity called the Brotherhood in 1938 and embraced nationalism. But in the lead-up to World War II, Latvia was occupied by the Soviet Union in 1939. What the Soviets do is they immediately round up and deport and in some instances kill on the spot um, bourgeois Latvians and nationalists who are were perceived to be kind of either aligned with the Germans or against the Soviet cause um, because Russia was still remembered as kind of their colonizer, their great enemy, understandably. Um, and so under those conditions, something like 2% of the Latvian population is deported to Siberia and thousands of people die along the way. And so when the Germans um, come in, the Latvian nationalists in some cases were happy to see them, which allowed them to recruit locals to join up and form their own units. Um, they were armed and they were told, you know, given orders from the German command to round up and kill um, the Jews in Latvia. And at the time, you know, the whole Baltic was, and Ukraine and Poland, of course, they were like these huge, rich Jewish populations, you know, some of the centers of the Jewish world, um, to the extent that they hadn't been destroyed by the pogroms. What happens in the Baltics, says Kinsler, isn't well known, because all too often when we think about the Holocaust, we might tend to think primarily of the infrastructure, of the concentration camps and the deportation trains. But in fact, what happened in Eastern Europe came before that infrastructure, she says. And it was what is called the Holocaust by bullets. It was um, face-to-face shooting. You don't have much documentation of it because a lot of it was destroyed, but victims saw the men who were killing them before their deaths. Um, And you have systematic murders of nearly the entire Jewish population of the Baltic states Um, between 1941, roughly, and 1943. One of my friends who's an investigative journalist in Riga told me, you know, you have to understand that for us, it's like World War II happened yesterday because it's all of the same dynamics are still in different ways, of course, but at play and the memory is still very much alive. Kinsler's book uses the format of the decades-long criminal investigation of Sukers as a frame through which to look at the latter half of the 20th century and the forms that justice took, not only in Latvia, but in all of Eastern Europe. A lot of the narrative takes me to Ukraine, uh, where my mother's family was from, and, you know, to think about how the Soviets staged justice after World War II what their trials looked like and how they were in some ways kind of manipulating and also um, accelerating uh, what we would call justice. 
and what we pursued at Nuremberg and elsewhere. The story of Zuckers, I think, is a necessary and unexamined um, sequel to what the Eichmann trial, which is, you know, one of the world historical trials, this kind of much studied event in the 20th century that allowed us for the first time, you know, it was one of the first times that Holocaust survivors were filmed and televised as they spoke of what happened. You know, it was a very public and dramatic example of vengeance and justice in the form of vengeance, perhaps. Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi German official and among the major organizers of the Holocaust. He was sentenced to death after his 1961 trial in Jerusalem, Israel. Unlike the trial proceedings in Nuremberg, which used mostly written documents to prosecute major Nazi criminals, the Eichmann trial centered survivors' testimony. In looking at the investigation into Sukers, Kinsler queries the ways in which we've been told that justice was conducted, exploring all the kinds of legal maneuvering that needed to take place for trials to happen at all. And then goes into the present and asks, you know, what position do we find ourselves in now? And how is it that we are still litigating the crimes of the Holocaust? And what form of justice does that produce? You know, what are we looking for with these trials that we haven't secured already through witness testimony, through works of history, through public memorials? What I observed to my great horror was that, you know, that Holocaust revisionism and denialism can be furthered by legal action uh, in the present. And we see this happening in Poland and in Latvia and in other nations with similar history. So I was really interested in understanding that. Over the years, Latvia nationalists and revisionists have defended Zuckers and tried to clear his and his country's name. They've produced films, written spy novels, and even performed an operatic stage musical portraying him as a heroic and innocent Latvian martyr. Did my understanding of justice change while writing this book? Certainly, I think I went into it quite naive, you know, thinking that, of course, you have a trial because that's the way that we achieve justice, that we, you know, ensure that the guilty um, face punishment, that they do not get off easily, you know. And then I came away realizing that there is so much, of course, you know, that a trial cannot accomplish. There is so much that it necessarily leaves out. You know, there's this famous line that you don't need to prove a thousand murders if you can prove a hundred. And so then what happens to that other 900? You know, they get left out of the legal record, but also in some ways they get left out of memory. And I think that we're at this moment right now that we've been anticipating for a very long time in which... The last Holocaust survivors are, you know, dying and reaching the ends of their lives. And we no longer have living witnesses to speak to, you know, in a museum or in whatever forum, but also legally. And it, one of the problems that I was interested in exploring in the book is, okay, you know, this fact that Holocaust survivors are dying and can no longer be brought to testify is what is being exploited by nationalists and Holocaust revisionists. And so how do you respond to that? One answer is that you get their children to testify on their behalf. 
there's this kind of intergenerational story, but that also tells us that, of course, justice is never accomplished. You know, of course, it's a kind of constant and ongoing thing. Um, but I also wanted to ask, okay, maybe the time has come that in which law is no longer the avenue that we need to secure it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What other avenues um, do you think should be used to secure it? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there are so many ways of looking at it at this moment. I think there has been a lot of really important work done with public memorialization, um, the public, public memory, you know, having kind of conversations with people who might not have been exposed to this history in different parts of the world. You know, I think in the United States, we're so used to the idea of Holocaust memory in some ways because it has been such a big part of education for so long. Although now that seems imperiled and you do encounter people who have only the faintest idea of what occurred. One of the great heartbreaks for me of what's going on in Ukraine is that, you know, the last time I had been there before this invasion was unleashed was in September, 2021. And it was at this time when they were about to, unveil this kind of grand uh, memorial at Babinyar, which is this really contested site. And there had been this controversial effort to have a real memorial and museum there. And it was underway. It was going to happen. Some people didn't like it. Some people did. But there was going to be a museum there. Not only was that site bombed in the first week of the war, um, in many of the buildings, including what was going to be a building that was going to be a museum to the Holocaust in Eastern Europe was bombed and destroyed. You know, like the metaphor is just awful. You know, we'll never, we never know when we're going to have that museum. Probably I think we will. I think it will be a different museum after this war. I'm actually working with a group called the Reckoning Project um, that is run by Janine DiGiovanni and Peter Pomerantsev, who are both incredible journalists who, and Natalia Gumenyuk, who's a Ukrainian investigative journalist, they came up with this project to collect testimonies from Ukrainians in a way that would be legally admissible, but also um, in some cases in which they're not anonymized, you know, available for public distribution. And so they have really made a concerted effort to collect and protect and, and anonymize testimonies so that when the trials do start, you will, they cannot say we don't have enough evidence. And so I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And speaking of public memorialization, you know, one of our projects is to think about what a public memorial for um, some of the massacres in Ukraine might look like. Although, in her research, Kinsler discovered some details about her paternal grandfather, Boris, that he was part of the RS commando with Hebert Sukers, and that he went on to join the KGB, she never figured out the circumstances of his disappearance. The official story that the KGB gave was that he killed himself. Um, 
you know, which may or may not be true. But what's really interesting is that after the book came out, there were a few excerpts that were published online. And one of the excerpts was in the Guardian long read. And there were photos of him. And after that went up, I got a message from this man in Latvia who said, you know, my grandfather served in the same Estonian town where your grandfather disappeared. And he remembered one day coming across a man who had killed himself on the beach and they found his gun and they found a note in his pocket saying, you know, I'm sorry, commander, I couldn't fulfill your mission. And so I have no way of knowing if that's my grandfather. I have no way of knowing if that's a true story, you know, and for me, I'm so used to these kinds of stories coming through that it's just another possibility that I have to contend with. The The title of your book, Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the second part, How the Holocaust Ends, and um, what the meaning of that is in this context. Yeah, so I thought a lot about the subtitle and, you know, um, I think what I meant by it, and I write this in the prologue, was that you know, it's certainly not a prescription, but rather a warning, you know, a effort to call attention to the, the fact that we are at this moment, as I said, of endings where, you know, survivors are increasingly no longer with us. And, you know, undeniably, we are entering a new period of memory. Um, and I wanted to warn that one of the things that's going on right now is that this memory is being erased. Um, and that if we, you know, I think there's something really interesting going on, which is that at precisely this moment when, you know, firsthand knowledge is slipping away for various reasons, there's also this increasing not desire to have a kind of forensic understanding, like absolute certainty of what happened and who did it and when and who pulled the trigger. And and I think that those two things are really deeply related, um, you know, and I found this witness uh, letter, a letter from a Holocaust survivor who had gone to interrogate a um, Nazi who was in West German um, detention. And he says, you know, this guy, this Nazi started confessing um, because I promised that if he confessed everything, I would help him get out of prison. And in his letter, he says, I realized um, I would, even if he confessed from A to Z, I would never know when it is Z. Like I would never know when he was done confessing or when he had totally, you know, documented all of his crimes. And so that's what I meant, meant when I was thinking about an ending, you know, you never yeah. know. And I think a lot of readers, of course, this history never ends. Of course, the Holocaust never ends, you know, but we need to think more seriously about what we do with this memory. Linda Kinsler is a PhD candidate in the Department of Rhetoric at UC Berkeley. Her first book, Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends, was published in 2022. I'm Anne Bryce, and this is Berkeley Voices, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs at UC Berkeley. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We also have another show, Berkeley Talks, which features lectures and conversations at Berkeley. 
You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.